Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! Well, it's 1969, okay. Walk across the USA. It's another year for me and you. Another year with nothing to do It's another year for me and you Another year with nothing to do Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Dashew. Yeah, I'm sure here. Where's that fountain? Also back in the booth is Mr. David Kittredge. Hello and welcome, and you both look very tasty today. Cinema Novo Month continues with a look at Joaquin Pedro de Andrade's Macunema, based on the 1928 modernist novel of the same name by Mario de Andrade, no relation to our director. The full title of the novel is Macunema, which translates to The Evil One, and it's got a subtitle of A Hero Without Any Character. As we discussed a bit last week, some see the Cinema Novo movement really ending around 1967, while others say it simply morphed into another phase. Regardless, Mako Naima is unlike any other movie that we've discussed this month so far, and it might be in the running for a favorite film of mine overall. It is wild, colorful, filled with enough subtext to choke a horse. I just loved this movie. Also, spoilers, we're going to be talking about everything Mako Naima, including the ending, so you have been warned. So, Chris, having gone with me on this month-long journey so far as we dive into Cinema Novo, what were your feelings about Mako Naima? First off, I'd like to say I loved... I could listen to you say Mako Naima over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for a little... uh it is different than the last three movies, for sure. Uh, not in a bad way. It's just I didn't know how different it was going to be. It is drastically different than the last three films. The last three films were pretty dour, self-serious experiences, especially in Terra and Trance. And then you get this, which is like surrealist comedy, absurdist comedy. Like you said, there's a whole lot of subtext in the film, and I'm sure we'll get to it. But this is really... This feels like what it felt like watching the first movie that we did for Cinema Novo Month. It's like the entire idea of everything I was expecting has been completely reset, if that makes sense. How about you, David? Certainly, I haven't been following you guys on Cinema Novo because, you know, they're not released yet. Uh, I will be listening to every one of them now that I've seen this film. This film is 
is a little bit crazy. Um, and it's really interesting because I did not know a lot about Brazilian cinema, uh, before, you know, you know, Mike, you invited me to be on this podcast to talk about this film. So I did a little research and I looked around and it's fascinating how <clears throat> if you take the, the two large steps back, and see how the cinema of the world was really developing through the, the late 50s, early 60s, and into the late 60s and early 70s. And how elements of the French New Wave and Bunuel and other surrealists, uh, you know, surrealists, of course, go back to, you know, the 40s and the 20s and stuff, but really affected so many different cinemas of differing countries in different ways. And this was interesting because it reflected the Brazilian uh, political situation, the cultural situation, and it was reasonably fearless when it came to how chaotic and crazy everything got. I mean, everything, it's, you know, kind of like Spielberg's 1941 was like turned up to 11. Even the ADR seemed to be turned up to 11. And I invite anyone who does not know anything about this film, as I did not before, Mike, you invited me on here, to just go on the Wikipedia and look at the poster. It looks like something out of Mad Magazine circa, like, I don't know, you know, 1967 or 8 or something. It's it's crazy, and it does kind of indicate what you're in for. It almost looks like it could be a fold-in. One of those, was it Al Jaffe, how he would do yes! the fold-ins on the back page? It kind of looks like that, yeah. It's like, what would it be if it were, <laughs> if it were folded up? Like, what would, it would like, you know, mama, it would do because the whole middle would be cut out. I had run across this film years ago when I was, you know, doing super happy fun in the gray market. And this film kind of turned up with subtitles and I'll admit it. I mean, there were so many films that I trafficked in back then that I never watched. And I just knew of this movie and I knew of it under the title Jungle Freak, which is how it was released in the US. I think New Line picked it up. And I've been looking for their version of the poster because it's supposed to be basically the big baby. And we'll talk about this. And I think just to be fair to the audience, because I don't know how many people might have seen Mako Naima before we speak about it. Let's try to be as clear as we can because this say like two two people will have seen this movie that are before before they listen to this but I'm, but this is great that like more people will be introduced to it because it's like a crazy movie that nobody's i i'm pretty nerdy and i never heard of it and and it was kind of a it's a little bit of a, a jewel i was really reminded a lot of el topo and more specifically of the holy mountain while i was watching this now the holy mountain is not a funny film but there are just that the vibrancy of color the hero's journey the wildness of things and i know that when i've written about uh, hardarowski before you know he claims that he grew up in a circus and that kind of comes through especially in things like santa sangre and this, I would say, is not a circle. It's the carnival. And we've talked a little bit about carnival and just how important it is to Brazil. And this movie just seems to reflect carnival. It just plays with a lot of figures that we see in carnival. It plays with the colors. I mean, at one point, our hero even is wearing this green and yellow sh uh, suit, like a yellow shirt under a green suit, which is totally the Brazilian flag. I mean, it is just, it's so steeped with so many ideas that are purely Brazilian, but luckily there has been enough written about this that I'm able to start to understand this. But if you come in cold, my God, I feel for you. It's just, if you come in cold, it's like watching the Holy Mountain without knowing anything, say, about tarot. You know, it's just like, it's really just a wild experience. Well, and on top of everything else, like we've mentioned, it is quote unquote a comedy, but I'm not sure I find anything that happens in the movie funny. <laughs> I mean, it's not its not a comedy in a laugh-out-loud kind of way. It's absurdist. It pushes the boundaries, and it does things that, for all intents and purposes, make zero sense unless they're viewed within the absurdist comedy lens. I appreciate that, but yeah, also trying to sell anyone on this film as a comedy, do that at your own risk to begin with. <laughs> I mean, the title of Jungle Freaks that New Line was running the film under was just, I was reading about that, and I, I could I couldn't help but wonder like did they watch this movie before they tried to sell it that way because there's no way that they could have because there are parts of this movie that are very not serious but they shift into self seriousness. 
But it's important also, and I don't want to jump too much ahead, and Mike, stop me if I am. Five years before this movie was made, Brazil was taken over by the military in a, in a coup. And it was very restrictive. And what you started to see in the late 60s uh, across the world, but, you know, in restrictive countries like Brazil were like a lot of rebellious art and a lot of rebellious artists. And you can see it in, in, in a lot of, I mean, I'm, I'm also reminded of the early works of Almodovar in Spain. And that was nowhere near as restrictive as Brazil, but it was certainly not, you know, a, a very freewheeling kind of situation over there. Um, this kind of cinema that came out of this right wing milieu. I mean, you can, you can see it kind of wherever there's like kind of a repression, there's always kind of a pushback. And, you know, the cinema novo movement was certainly part of that. Well, I dedicated the first three months of this year to talk about films made in or coming out in 1969. And this movie is another 1969 movie. This is one of the, one of the reasons why I chose this at the beginning of the year. One, it fit in with the list of Cinema Novo films that I'd run in front of uh, Frederick Tutton, who had been down there at the time and was writing and knew some of the filmmakers. And the other thing was that it was 1969. And plus, like I said, this has been kind of floating around my head for the last 20 years or whatever. Great. Another 1969 film. And yeah, you're right. This speaks to what had happened in 64, what was going on in 1968 in Brazil, as well as the rest of the world. And I just really quickly, you know, I talked last week when we talked about Earth Entranced, talked about how some people see that as kind of the end of one movement. And then this film and others being the beginning of another, or at least like a third phase of Cinema Novo. And I want to uh, read just a little bit from Robert Stain's Subversive Pleasures, where he talks about this divide. He says, at the same time that Cinema Novo entered its tropicalist phase, an alternative underground cinema emerged. While Brazilian commercial cinema was by definition on the margins of hegemonic cinema, and while Cinema Novo was on the margins of commercial cinema, the underground cinema was, as it were, on the outskirts of the margins. Not only were these films made in a marginal area of the city, the low-life district of Sao Paulo known as Boca de Lixo, Mouth of Garbage, but they also featured marginal characters. As Cinema Novo moved towards relatively big-budget quality films, the underground rejected well-made cinema in favor of a, quote, dirty screen, unquote, and, quote, garbage aesthetics, unquote. We had a little bit of the city in Terra and Trans, but really we've never had something that took place so much in the jungle and in the city. Like, this is the first time that we've really had this crossover, Chris, because, like, the first few films we talked about were in that barren northeast corner of Brazil, and this one, actually, we have so much of it taking place in Sao Paulo. Well, and I would say that the whole one of the whole kind of framing devices and points that they try to make in this film is the divide between the people of the city and the people of, the, I guess, would we say the jungle, the native population? Uh, because, you know, the, the character of Makunaima starts out as a black jungle dweller and then gets turned white by a magical fountain, you know, and then he transitions into the city part of the movie. And it's all about these contrasts between city and jungle folk. Because again, like that's something that Brazil has still that this country being the United States doesn't really have to grapple with anymore. And that's not something that this country really cares about. Even if we, I mean, look, this country wouldn't care about it. Even if we had to, frankly, that's an unfortunate truth. Just look at the way our first people have been marginalized inside of our own country. The city is such a bigger part of this story than anything we've seen this month. It is kind of jarring. They really use the city as, okay, this is the second act of the film. You know, the first act of the film, all jungle. And that we open with the birth of Makonaima, who, and it took me a long time. I was just like, man, that woman is not very attractive. Then finally it dawned on me. That's no woman. That's a, that's a basically white male actor. Yeah. (laughs) 
So this man in drag giving birth to this fully grown, I mean, they, they say 50 year old, he doesn't necessarily look 50, but this fully grown man, this smaller stature, black man, Grande Otero, I think is the actor's name, who's just got this great face and he's got his hair all stuck out. He kind of looks like Flavor Flav when he doesn't wear a hat. And it, it was just amazing. I love this guy in that his whole thing, he, he doesn't speak for apparently six years. And then when he does, the first thing he does is complain about how lazy he is. And it's neat, his family dynamic of he's got an indigenous brother, he's got an Afro-Caribbean brother, and he's got him who is black. And then to your point, Chris, he goes into a magic fountain and turns white. But he also turns white when he is hitting on his black brother's bride, who I love that her dress is made out of like flower sacks. And it speaks kind of to like, like uh, imported goods, because I noticed all the labels are in English, so it, it's interesting how she just is wearing that. And yeah, they go out in the forest. She offers him a quote-unquote magical cigarette, and then suddenly he turns into this white prince and starts banging her. Uh, you didn't say where she brought the cigarette out of my... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't <laughs> right. forget to mention where the cigarette came from. Pulled it right out of her crotch and gave it to him. When they are having sex, one of the first things she does is bites his toe, and you can see that his toe is bleeding, and it's one of the first instances of cannibalism that we're going to get in this film, and cannibalism goes through this whole thing. There's a scene at the end of the film where they're making feohada, and they're making it by throwing people into a pool. Yeah, it took me a moment to realize, like, oh no, that's just a giant stew pot. I get it now. That scene was in that Cinema Novo documentary that we've talked about, Chris, and I was just like, out of context, I was like, what the hell is this? This looks amazing. And I had no idea that it was Mako Naima. So when one of the characters shows up, I was like, oh, this is where that clip is from. Okay, now I get it. Well, and this film has a connection to the last film that we watched because Hardel Filo plays the Venesla Pietro, Pietro Pietra character. And he was the main character in Entranced Earth. I mean, completely unrecognizable, obviously. He's got that big padded fake butt under those like what is it like purple underwear in those crazy eyebrows that he wears and this is apparently he looks a lot like a character that comes out during carnival so i talked about how carnival is so important to this and it's like this kind of fake king that they dethroned in carnival i read a lot of the book for this and it is really faithful to the book to a point and this whole beginning of Makunaima's life, where he's with his family, and this whole thing of like him being able to capture a taper while his brother can't, and his brother getting his revenge by giving Makunaima only the entrails to eat while the rest of the family gets to eat all of the taper meat. And just all of this stuff is like right up there. And I didn't realize, like, there's a part where Makunaima is kicked out of his house and he's wandering through the jungle and he comes across this guy who's by this, uh, I think it's by a river or something. And Makunaima is like, oh, I'm so hungry. And the guy cuts off a piece of his leg and gives it to him to, him to eat. And then once he eats the, the flesh, the giant, or no, he's not necessarily a giant, but this ogre-type character can cry out to his leg meat, and that's why Makonaima, as he's running away, just keeps saying, what's up? What's up? It's actually the meat inside of him is speaking. So it took me <laughs> to, to read the book before I realized, why is he doing this? Why is he doing And then finally, he, he vomits up the meat and is able to escape, because otherwise he just keep calling out to the ogre to say, like, here I am, come and eat me. It is one of the more repulsive things I've seen in a movie in a while. So there is that too. But it, it's like, yeah, because he vomits it into like this ditch with water in it. And then you see the meat that he vomited, like try to call out to the ogre through bubbles. I've just described this to you. If you've never seen this, if this is your thing, you got to go see this movie. And even if it's not, it's a pretty interesting movie. This movie is also very different from everything that we've seen so far with Cinema Novo as far as how freaking colorful it is. You know, this, we talked about how, you know, with Antonio Desmortes, how that was Rausha's first color film, but that was so muted compared to something like this where everything just 
pops off the screen. And I found it interesting too that, you know, we've talked about how important music is to these movies and how many of the songs were contemporary to the time. Like there's at least one older song in it. And especially the opening song is, is much older. It's kind of like how great Brazil is. And it's this very patriotic song that begins and ends the movie. But some of these other songs that are in here are just like needle drops right off the radio. It's just so weird to me. Like you, you're mentioning this like trash cinema. You're mentioning like trash cinema and like you know putting the trash up on the screen and really kind of going out of your way to to kind of I guess reflect the state of the cities and the country from the view of the people. And it's just so weird that this is you know '69 and we're getting this because this film doesn't even feel like it was made in '69. This film feels like it was made much more contemporary than the year that it's made on top of everything else. Considering, like, the last three films that we watched that were all in black and white, that were really stark, especially the first two, and and arid and depressing. And then you get this film, it's like, it's it almost doesn't even feel like it's part of the same movement. So I understand why they're saying the things that they are about Cinema Novo. Yeah, I'm very curious what The Lion Has Seven Heads is going to bring us next week when we talk about it, since it's another Rosha, but it's 1970, so it's after this one, it's definitely after Terram Trends, and it's like, okay, what is this going to bring to us? You know, So I'm really excited to see that film now after seeing this, because it's like, how can Rosha make his same films in this era of tropicalismo because this is so different. But then you also see like, and we can talk about this a little bit more later, you know, the first film we watched, A Barren Lives, Veda Secas, the filmmaker of that ended up making How Tasty Was My Little Frenchman from, I think, 1970. And so that he's making that during this tropicalismo phase, also making about cannibalism. And it is... Is so starkly different than Vita Sekas. Well, and again, I mean, this idea of the public wanting something more like Makunaima versus something like Terra Entrance. It's funny to me. If I were the audience, I would probably want something that's more reflective of what's going on. And less in a... Because, I mean, that's the thing about Makunaima, obviously, is that it doesn't... Unlike Terra Trance, unlike Vita Secas, it's not directly addressing the issues. It's addressing them in a roundabout way while still trying to be entertaining. And that's maybe what the first two films of this Cinema Novo experience have lacked, is they weren't particularly entertaining. They were just informative, and in the first two films, especially the first one more so than the second depressing. What the filmmaker is doing is going back and playing with this idea of the chanchaba, which was this really popular comedy and musical, and it was like the dominant form of cinema in Brazil for a lot of years. Like, you think about the films that Carmen Miranda made when she was in Brazil, and some some of them even when she was in the U.S. He's playing with that here, having say, like, Makunaima's mother in drag, or when Makunaima is white later on in the film, and he goes in drag. But then he's also making political points at the same time, because he's playing this French widow, and that uh, the Pietra Pietro character that you mentioned is... Now, and this is very difficult to figure out not being a Brazilian speaker, Portuguese speaker, is that he is speaking Portuguese with an Italian accent. So he's portraying this idea of Italians coming over to Brazil and making all this money. And so now he's just like, oh, yeah, no, I came over and I found this fish and I bit into it and there's this magical amulet and that's how I made all my money. And it's like. Okay. <laughs> but, and then the reporters call him out on it. It's like, why did you do that? You bought, bit the fish while it was raw and all this. You didn't gut the fish. And he just like, he's, he keeps holding up that fish. He's just like, this fish, this is the one. It brought me all my luck. And then he throws it away, but he still has the amulet. So it's like, he's playing with all these things. He's still making a political point, even though he's got his main character in drag trying to woo this really repulsive, uh, Italian immigrant character. He's pretty repulsive, uh, but I mean, you know, he's very much an archetype as well. I mean, you see a lot of that character in a lot of the movies of that era, especially in, you know, kind of wacky comedies. And they, they, they generally don't end up 
in a good situation as as this one does not. Though I am I am uh, gratified to see the, uh, the the nod to the fact that he's open minded. He actually finds out that our hero is dressed up in women's clothing and is actually a boy, but says, "Yeah, I'll, I'll still do you. I'm open minded. Get over here." I was like, "Wow, okay, I'm booking my ticket." Well, nobody's perfect, and I like that they're playing with gender in this film and that's one thing i've heard about brazil years ago and that i need to look up now that i'm in it that we have things like wikipedia and things out there where it's like i had heard once years and years ago probably uh early 90s it was like well you know it was when somebody first described to me the difference between sex and gender and it's like oh well you know male and female are sexes but masculine and feminine are genders and just how you can play with genders and stuff and i was reading oh yeah there are say eight different genders in brazil and it's like well how can that even be as this young american i'm just like i can't even fathom what that even means but it's like Brazil has such a wide array of you know, like even when it comes to, you know, we're talking about these Indian characters, black characters, European characters. And it's like for us, it's like, oh, yeah, well, there's, you know, black, white and red kind of thing. And for Brazil, it's like, oh, no, there's like a thousand shades of people. And, you know, it's like how Eskimos have however many words for snow. Like that's kind of you know the myth. I'm sure that there are that many words for different mixtures of people in Brazil. And this whole idea, too, that I love where. So Makonaima starts his life as a black man, and then he finds this magical fountain, and he steps into it. And that's one of these uh, moments where we go back and we actually play an older piece of music, and it's a piece of music that was used in a movie from, I think, 1932. And it's it's interesting, because in that scene in the movie, it's a bunch of black children that are playing in a fountain. And so here's Makonaima in this fountain that turns him white. And then I love how his brother comes up and tries to put himself, who's also black, into the fountain. And he just touches the water with his hands. He's like, oh, it only turned my palms white. (laughs) And then his Indian brother tries to go in there. And they're like, why do you care? You're already white. And it's like, well, not necessarily. But just so now he is a white man. He falls in love with this urban gorilla who in the book was the uh, guardian of the the Amazon. And now in the movie, she's turned into this urban gorilla who feels like she just walked right out of like a Godard film. And then when they have a child, it ends up being the same actor who played Makonema as a black guy. And so there's this whole thing of like, no matter who you are in Brazil, and I I heard this phrase for the first time in a discussion of the film, it was, you've always got one foot in the kitchen, as in, there's always black blood in your past. And so it's like, okay, so when they end up having a child, it's the black child. And there's no question about it. There's no like, oh, you were with another man. Like, that's kind of a punchline here in the U.S. But for them, it's just like, okay, whatever. And I love that it's mother to son, son, son to the same son, son, uh, father to son of like just these characters interchanging with one another as they go along. And I always feel so bad when uh, the urban gorilla blows herself up, which I think is a comment on the rebels that were there in Brazil at this time. Makonaima is heartbroken. It's like he never ends up not carrying a torch for for Sai, the, the urban gorilla. And I think you touched on something that was really interesting to me just coming into it like kind of cold, which was we talk about subtext and we talk about cultural like comment, but I don't think you can watch this film without talking about how it deals with the racial issue. And it's very, it's very much the class issue too, but the racial issue is very interesting because you have this thing where it, it's, you know, similar to other countries that, you know, kind of have been colonized by lighter skinned people of the push pull between, you know, the darker skinned natives and the lighter skinned people who, you know, kind of have more money and populate the cities and stuff. And, you know, the, the way that these characters are even shot, not even like just dealt with in the plot is really fascinating because everybody as much of a character as anybody else. And everyone as much as is as much of a human as anyone Although I would argue that the sexual politics, I think, were a little more blind than the racial politics. The sexual politics are are more or less, you know, something you would find in a frat house. I love when his wife or the the 
the gorilla, when she ends up having the baby, he's the one that stays home and rests <laughs> and that she's the one <laughs> going out and quote unquote working. Cause she's the one who's strapping on the machine gun. And I love that. She's got like the, the ditto machine and all of these things, like all of the stuff that makes her the perfect gorilla. She can spread the leaflets. She can get the message out. She's got the bomb. She's got grenades. And I love when she puts the bomb in the baby carriage and sets the timer <laughs> And pushes the baby out. Like, she is so modern that she's able to be both gorilla and mother at the same time. That was an amazing scene when she was, like, she, she was, like, setting up the bomb uh, in the baby carriage. And just like, yeah, I think I'll set it for 11.15. Yeah, take me 15 minutes to get there. Yeah, well, you know, this clock runs a little fast. It's like, oh, okay. Probably probably not a good idea. I have to bring up Bunuel again. I mean, because this is just it's it really, really strikes me that Bunuel was a huge influence on this film and, and his work. I can see that. And I can even see, you know, the absurdist thing, you know, I was talking about the Chanchaba. I can see the absurdism of, you know, going all the way back to Bunuel's earliest work, going all the way back to Enchanandalu. I can see this kind of surrealism that we saw in a lot of silent films. Uh, I mean, the, the Pietro Pietra character, he kind of reminded me of, um, what's the guy's name? Alfred Eric Campbell, the guy who is the villain in so many Charlie Chaplin films, you know, he's with the thick brow and the big gut and all this. He just looks like he is ready to just step right out of a silent f- film right into this movie that could become like the main plot of the film of Makunaima trying to get this um, pendant that's the urban guerrilla war and more of a keepsake for her rather than um, what it's supposed to be which is a, a talisman that brings you know good luck if you're out on a hunt or more fish if you're out fishing and so that's why this guy has come from nothing and when he finds this um, pendant he becomes very wealthy and I know that Makunaima would like to be wealthy but I think even more than that he wants to be connected to the gorilla that he loved so much because it's interesting he doesn't go out and start sleeping with every woman hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Afterwards, uh, even though he, as uh, especially when he was black, not Makunaima, slept with anybody, especially his brother's significant other, no matter who his brother had, uh, <laughs> he would sleep with her. Yeah, well, and she would sleep with him, which is, you know, goes back to the, I mean, I, there's no woman in this movie that actually has a character. I think it's really important to, <laughs> to say there's literally no woman in this movie that is not like a plot device or some shrieking, crazed, nymphomaniacal, whatever. I can see how this could play to an audience. No, I agree with you. This would uh, definitely fail the Bechdel test. Well, the only female characters you sort of have are the ones that attempt to eat him. I think it's Pietro Pietra's wife and then his daughter. And there's that whole, I thought that it was going to turn into one of those like closed door kind of French farce moments, but luckily it doesn't get that far to it. The female characters are very, very uh, lightly drawn, but I would say even when it comes to his own brothers, they're pretty interchangeable. A lot of the times, if they're not making what we would consider racist jokes, but I don't think the Brazilians would consider them racist jokes. And I do like they, they call Makonaima out on it. At one point, there's like the most overtly political scene for me, which is the guy who's standing up by a statue and he is giving this very rousing speech. And I think it's a very right wing speech. And then they shout him down and Makonaima gets up there and he says something that I can't even remember what it was, but his brother's like, Oh, now that you're white, you're going to be racist. 
you know, we talked a little bit about cannibalism, and it's not just the literal act of cannibalism. It's not just the literal act of people eating each other, which does play a major part in this film, but it's also this idea of people fucking each other over and the poor cannibalizing the poor. And there's that amazing sequence where Makonaim is out at a park and this guy comes up to him and he sells him a goose that is supposed to lay coins and he shows him the goose laying the coins. He's like, oh, great. And he gives him all of his money, thinking he's going to make all this money off of it. And then the goose ends up shitting on his hands. And then you cut from that to, I guess it's like a paper boy or something. And this big bully comes up shoe, and it was shoe shine, shoe, shoe shine. Thank boy. you. Yeah. He takes all the shoe shine boys money. And then Mako Naima comes up and you think he's going to comfort the kid. And he's like, no, he's still got a little bit of money left. I'm going to take that. Well, and he says like, and this is what you get, you know, or you deserve this or something like that. It was like, wow. Okay. It's very much a fable. This whole thing, it's, 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 I, you know, I, I, well, I was going to compare it to Strange Love, but I don't think that there's much comparison, a, a, a long, you know, aside from kind of an absurdist kind of tone, but this is way, way, way further. And, and it's very episodic. It's almost like you could take any one of these like 20 minute segments and kind of make a cute little short film about it. I think it's meant to be taken as a fable and all of these things, which, which had great resonance for Brazilian audiences in the late sixties and early seventies, you know, it, it behooves us now to kind of like, just, you know, read a Wikipedia page or two just to get the references and just to get kind of where people were at to see why this was such an influential film. Yeah. They play with these things like, at one point, a uh, character says, oh, my elbow hurts. And then that is, it's kind of like wearing a green hat in China. It's like, uh, you know, if your elbow hurts, someone is cuckolding you. And sure enough, Makunaima is cucking, uh, cuckolding him. Or when he walks up to his mother and he was like, oh, mom, I had a dream about my tooth falling out. And she's like, well, you know what that means? That means somebody is going to die. And then she keels over right <laughs> like that. It's this very Monty Python-esque death of her. <laughs> Monty Python is a good, it's a good analogy. It's a little less chaotic, a little more focused because like there is a story here and there is like, there are points to be made. It's, it's very much in that kind of world. It reminded me too, a little bit of, uh, what's the guy's name? Gabriel Garcia Marquez, this whole idea of magical realism as well. Like just that, like here's this fountain and it's spring water and it turns them white. It's just like other little goofy things that happen in the movie where it's just like, okay, we accept this. Like you said, it's a fable. You know, it's, it, we shouldn't necessarily hold this to logical rules. It becomes, you know, we can call it surrealist. We can call it a fable, but yeah, it doesn't necessarily hold to, the rules of the world, you know, that he can turn into a prince and uh, have sex with his uh, sister-in-law, you know, is, is no big deal in this movie. And it's interesting in the the novel that this is based on, Makonaima is actually more of a magical character. Like the magic, he has the magic. Like he can turn himself into uh, a leafcutter ant and nibble on his uh, sister-in-law's bum. Like these kind of things. And here he is much more acted upon. You know, it's not like he has the power. He you know, smokes the cigarette and that turns him into the white prince. He sees the fountain and the fountain turns him into a white, a white person. Like there are things that happen to him rather than him being out there and into this. It's more that idea of the subtitle of the book, the hero without a character. He really is nothing. He's just acted upon at all times. He doesn't actually actively do things. You know, he gets in trouble so often because he's one of the laziest people on earth where he is, um, you know, that whole thing towards the end of the film, when his brothers are out, one's hunting, one's fishing, and they come back and he tells this incredible tale of how he was sneaking up on a deer and how he pounded the deer over the head. And then he ate the entire thing, but he did keep a little bit of food for his brothers, but oops, it fell into an ant hill and then it, the ants ate it. The supporting character, uh, the old man, comes up to him and is like, look at me. If you blink, you're lying. And there's a, there's a moment, and they're just looking at each other, and he just starts blinking like crazy. Like, like there's no way that this was involuntary. It's just like, starts blinking. Like, uh, you know, he's just, he's the main character as kind of like a dipshit fuck up. 
you're supposed to like him, but you're not supposed to really sympathize with him. Like, so when, when the main character, like, you know, somewhat spoiler alert, meets his fate at the end of the film in a kind of a bizarre way that, like, you know, it was like, oh, okay, that happened? Great. Y- you don't particularly feel bad for him because it's just like, yeah, well, what else were you going to do? You've been abandoned uh, because you're, you're basically a, a shit. And you're lazy and you're stupid and you don't care. And, well, of course, you know, there's going to be a cannibal water nymph that eats you. He's so stupid that when they leave Sao Paulo to go back to their forest dwelling, he takes all of these things with him, like a television set, a blender. He doesn't even bring an acoustic guitar. He brings an electric guitar. (laughs) I don't need anything except this. This ashtray, and that's the only thing I need is this. I don't need this or this. This, this ashtray. And this paddle game. The ashtray and the paddle game, and that's all I need. And this, this remote control. The ashtray and the paddle game and the remote control, and that's all I need. Why don't you know all those hookups in the jungle for electricity? Well, yeah, it's just like all the Wi-Fi out there. I do like the end of the film because, again, it it just it further reinforces the surrealist nature of the film where Makunaima just decides to jump into the water with the cannibal witch. And it's like, okay, when he takes off the little the rock too the the magic rock, which we spent. It's so funny because the magic rock isn't really much in the movie until he gets to the city and then it becomes basically the entire plot. Like, oh, got to get this magic rock back. And then, yeah, he just throws it away, pretty much. Well, yeah, but, I mean, what luck did it really bring him? It, like, brought him a bunch of, like, you know, uh, he brought him an electronic guitar and a fan, which he can't plug in anywhere. And they go back to the shack, and he's still a lazy bum. And then he gets abandoned, and he takes off the rock, and he jumps in the water with a cannibal nymph. I mean, doesn't that happen? That happens. The only person that he can talk to for a while when he's living in the jungle is a parrot. And of course, my mind, Chris, just went right back to Vita Sekas. And I was just like, is he going to kill that parrot? Is he going to eat that damn parrot? I thought he was going to. But even the parrot ends up abandoning him. Granted, when he sees that beautiful water nymph in the, uh, you know, swimming around, she does keep her back to him so that he doesn't see the blowhole in the back of her neck. Because that was the reason he jumped in, because he couldn't see the blowhole. And you know cold water is supposed to cure you of lust. Well, I just got back from swimming in the pool, and the water was cold. Uh, (laughs) You mean shrink it? Yes. So he was ready to dive in anyway because he was so horny, and then he sees that beautiful woman swimming, swimming around, and either I'll cure myself of lust one way or another. Yeah, in the book he ends up, becoming Ursa Major, I think. He just kind of wills himself to become a constellation. So when you look up at Ursa Major from now on, you can think of Makonaima. It's funny that we're talking about like the way that this film was coded with its more subversive elements, because you know, going back to where Brazil was at this moment, you had to code it. You could not be directly subversive about the government or because they had just passed two years before this movie came out in 1967. They passed a new constitution, which strictly and strongly restricted freedom of speech in a way that, you know, in the U S we're not, hopefully we'll never be used to, or certainly not at this moment. I hope that lasts. And it's scary that it, you know, one even thinks that it might not. But you had to code everything so that it would get past the censors. So one of the reasons I think that this is so crazy and and chaotic and all this crazy stuff is happening is because it, it kind of provides a cover for what they really want to say. So, I mean, at the end of the movie, I mean, really, you've got this poor person, this schlub, who kills a very rich, powerful person in a really demonstrative way and gets away with it. Now – how else besides a chaotic comedy could you get away with a plot like that in Brazil in 1969? I think this is the only way, right? Yeah. I mean, you had to make it absurd and crazy. Like, like, oh, suddenly he's being put into a swimming pool, which is really a gigantic crock pot for human soup. Uh, and he's going to get cooked. I mean, that to me was one of the most, you know, I talked about Hodorowski earlier, and that to me was like one of the most Hodorowski moments. It's just, here's this giant soup kettle, and the bride and groom just seem so thrilled that 
their father-in-law or, or the father has done this for them. And they're just happy and cheering when Makonaima is swinging across. And then when Pietro Pietra finally falls in, they're just like stand up and cheer. And it's just like, okay, great. One of the things I find interesting is that of all the movies we've talked about, Chris, this is the most readily available. There was a big box set that Kino Lorber put out just a few years ago of all of Joaquin Pedro, Pedro de Grande's films, his shorts, his features, pretty much everything in his filmography is available in this. I think it's a three Blu-ray set. I have to say, this is also one of the most beautiful prints that we've been able to see. Yeah, we saw some okay stuff when it came to, like, Vita Secas was pretty beat up, but then, like, Black God, White Devil was all right. Uh, we know how much pain they went through to restore Tara Mantrance and, and Antonio Das Mortes, but this film looks like it played yesterday. I mean, you even talked about how this doesn't even feel like it's the 1969 film. It doesn't feel like it's from 1969. And I was really shocked, because now we're kind of more or less on the topic of the kind of American version of the film. I was shocked to hear that this film got an American dubbed release. Like, I can't even, I cannot fathom watching this film dubbed in the United States and having any idea what is going on with any of the subtext. Because this film is almost 99% subtext. No, but at the time, in like when you look at what was happening in American independent cinemas in the early seventies, there were a lot of these these foreign movies that were kind of like taken up by New Line or or other independent distributors and kind of repackaged and kind of thrown into drive-ins and 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 other kind of lower rent cinemas. Like Alan Carr, the famous producer, went on to do Grease and the beloved "Can't Stop the Music," beloved in quotes. Basically, he he started his career as a film producer by packaging this Spanish movie about the the soccer team that got you know crashed in the Andes mountains and started to eat each other. That was remade as Alive later by Frank Marshall, um, and it was called Survive. And basically, it, it's 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 not a good movie. It's not a terrible movie, but basically, he made his career because he sold it as this adventure in the Andes or whatever. And it made money. And there were a lot of movies that were foreign films that could make a certain amount of money on a certain circuit, uh, either exploitation films or, you know, Cries and Whispers or something like that. You know, there were a lot of people who were looking for entertainment and, and cinema outside of Hollywood, especially in the big cities. And they would take a chance on a movie that looked interesting or looked fun. When you sell a movie that's crazy and foreign, the undercurrent to that is like, they're going to be boobs. There's going to be sex. There's going to be something that you can't see that studios in America won't make. And this whole philosophy extended to the 80s, and that's kind of how Miramax came about. Miramax started taking these movies that were made in the in, in France or wherever and repackaging them as these sexy foreign romps or whatever, despite the quality of the movie being good or bad, depending on what it was, uh, they would make a, a tidy profit. Boy, and isn't the cinema world better for it? Harvey Weinstein and all those weird uh, movies with incestual relationships between French people. Murmur of the Heart, man. La, La Luna. Well, La Luna was made in English, but, you know, same diff. And they were infamous for recutting this stuff, too. I mean, that was the only way you could see a lot of Jackie Chan movies for a long time was this idea. Well, unless you were, you know, out there on the, uh, you know, international DVD or VHS market, but... That was it. Was Harvey going in with an axe, and you know the mirror Max was uh, uh, the axe was very emphasized with the way he would go in and cut these Jackie Chan films or other. Yeah, we talked about it when we talked about our Jackie when we did Jackie Chan month on my podcast. We talked about that, like the destruction of foreign films because you know hashtag American viewers don't know any better. Anyways, I mean I get it from like a cynical standpoint. It makes sense, but like. Now that you can watch them in their original form, it's like, oh boy, like what the hell is going on? The mindset of Bob Shea or Harvey Weinstein, uh, you know, and all the other guys that were were doing this stuff. I think even Roger Corman released a few. I think didn't Roger Corman release Cries and Whispers? He did, and he released uh, Shogun Assassin. He had seen the original Lone Wolf and Cub movies and approved the whole idea of recutting them into Shogun Assassin. I mean, it was never meant as some kind of like 
protecting cinema or bringing foreign cinema to American audiences was like, how can we take this raw material and package it so that we can make a bunch of money in America? And it's like, you kind of respect that. And I'm glad I'm not, I'm certainly not in favor, but I get it. And if it did bring a lot of these titles to American prominence, you know, maybe that's a step that I needed to go to through. I did really quick want to bring up, I think it's Dos Santos who did Vida Secas had also done How Tasty Was My Little Frenchman, which I don't know, again, talking, David, about uh, the idea of repackaging things and putting them out there. I mean, I didn't realize until starting, uh, especially with this movie, especially with Mako Naima, the research that I was doing, I kept uncovering things where I was like, oh, I know this film. I have seen this video box. So when I saw the poster art for T- How Tasty Was My Little Frenchman, I was like, okay, I've seen this art. And then I've seen there's uh, another one that was brought up in discussion where I was like, oh, I've seen this before too. And then I start to realize just the boom of Brazilian films and that somebody somewhere was doing a great job of actually bringing those to VHS and putting them in American blockbusters even, because I remember so many of the later films, especially like the 80s, 90s Brazilian films versus these things from the 60s, which were fairly obscure for me. But yeah, 19, I want to say it was 1970, How Tasty Was My Little Frenchman. And that is a really interesting film. And I would highly encourage everybody to check that one out too. But it is so different from Makunaima. Like we talked about how wild Makunaima is and just that it is super fast paced. I mean, things happen, bing, bang, boom. And Frenchman is a lot more slow, though there's a lot of stuff that happens in it, and it is all set in the, I want to say 1600s, but obviously from the title, they talk a lot about cannibalism and it is... They have title cards that are are in Portuguese, but then the rest of the film is in native language as well as French. And it's interesting, they keep calling... Even though the title of the film is How Tasty Was My Little Frenchman, they keep calling the main character, who is this um, sailor, they keep calling him Portuguese through the whole thing, even though he's French. They just don't even know the difference, um, you know, because all whites look alike to these folks. And it's just like, yeah, I totally understand it. And they're like, they do tests to see if he's Portuguese or French, and he ends up failing the test. So they call him Portuguese because the Portuguese they saw as their oppressors, where the French, they didn't necessarily see them that way. So, yeah, it's very interesting. I, I recommend that, too. It would be a good double feature with Makunaima. Is there a way to find this New Line Cinema version of Makunaima? Because I looked. I'm going to have to look around some, but I was unable to uncover anything. Because it sounded like it got kind of stuck in the 70s and it never made it. I mean, any version that, like you've mentioned, Mike, any version that we're seeing of it now is just the original version of the film. I had read that there was a like an introduction that was done for this movie. I want to say it was before it showed internationally where it was discussing cannibalism. And then obviously we don't have that on the print that we're seeing with this. Again, it's just so weird to me. And I would love to see what that version looks like and what they, cause they had to have omitted stuff. I would think so. It doesn't, it doesn't say all it says is there was a new line release three years after the film came out that was English dubbed, but I couldn't find an English dubbed version. I couldn't find a separate runtime. And it's like, I'm just so curious because like we've been talking about there, it's gotta be wildly different because this doesn't play for American audiences with it being the way it is in the version that we watched. A seventies American audience is not going to watch this film with a lot of the overt subtext towards like what's actually going on in Brazil and the race relations within the country. Like American audiences, if the title of the film is jungle freaks, the American audience is going to go, what in God's name is any of this have to do with a quote unquote jungle freak comedy? Well, you never know. I mean, they could have just released it. The runtime of the film isn't terribly long. Uh, and although they could probably like, you know, cut it down to like some kind of an 80 minute, whatever, maybe they just didn't bother. 
Yeah, you're right, Chris. A dubbed English-language version titled Jungle Freaks had a brief exploitation house run in 1972, and audiences who, who see the new festivals... Okay, this is a, an article from 2004 where it's showing at the New York Film Festival that see a new pristine subtitle print will understand why. I find it weird that of all the movies that we've talked about this month for Cinema Novo, this is the one that got a subtitled American run. I, I find it weird, but I don't, I guess. Because of, of all the movies, it kind of makes the most sense because comedy is kind of transcends language barriers in some respects, slapstick. And, and when it comes to, like, dialogue-heavy comedy, that's a different story. But it's just weird to me that it wasn't Entranced Earth or Vita Se because it's this. It's just like, really? like That's so weird. Well, maybe it's just because it was so crazy. I mean, it's 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 definitely something that like, oh, look at the wacky Brazilians running around and being crazy. You know, in the trailer, don't show anything about like people slicing meat off their own legs and stuff. When it comes to Brazilian films that I'm familiar with before we started on this thing, I was familiar with, uh, what is it? Os Trapel, Hoyce. It was like, a, I think it translates as the bunglers. And they were a group of comedians. And I put comedians in quotes. They're a group of comedians. At least they're not funny to me as an American. Um, they had done, and I mostly knew them because they had done a version of Star Wars. It was, uh, War of the Planets, uh, the bunglers in War of the Planets. And it's just this, goofy fucking we're going to make fun of star wars um and it's like the bunglers were not nearly as funny as like say the monkeys or something but like they starred in a whole series of these different films where they would you know it's almost like you know carry on star wars but it was like <laughs> the, the 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 brazilian version of that um and then yeah when i was reading today i was just like coming across that there were parody films in brazil of things like Jaws of E.T. of the uh, the Exorcist, and I'm like, okay, this is almost like, like how Turkey. there were Turkish versions. Yes, thank you. <laughs> well, and everybody knows Turkish Star Wars is the only version of Star Wars <laughs> worth watching. <laughs> the Last Jedi, and, and the be Exorcist. damned. Turkish Star Wars only for me, please. I think I probably have seen Turkish Star Wars way more than I've seen the Last Jedi. Well, there's a reason for that. And don't forget, too, when we're talking about Jungle Freaks coming out in, say, 1972, I mean, they could have marketed this as it's got a black hero for some of the time. They right. could have marketed this to an urban audience because this was the golden age of black exploitation that was coming out right around here. And it was just like, OK, great. Black person put him on the poster. I wonder how that would have played. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. As a black exploitation film. Like I could like you said, I could see it from like a logistical standpoint but not from like a once you sit down and start watching the movie it's like wait what yeah i would be very curious to see that dubbed version you know i talked about how the music is like a lot of it was the current day brazilian hits i mean tropicalismo was a musical style before it was a movie style so a lot of the songs in here were just like popular things at the time would they have made these American songs if they dubbed it in English, you know, what would have happened with these things? So it's kind of like, I was very fortunate to find the dubbed version of um, Eyes Without a Face, the the French film, and that was just so radically different with uh, just hearing English voices coming out of these French people's mouths. I would be so curious, to your point, to, to see what the American re-release of this film would have been like. Probably not good. I wouldn't have wanted to go see it sober. And, and, and I would imagine most who did, did not. You're probably right. They might have uh, been smoking the cigarettes out of uh, the sister-in-law's crotch. The ones, the ones that turn people a different race. Yeah, that, that does happen. All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Hello, I'm Dame Judi Dench, Her Royal Highness, the Honorary Queen of the British Isles, parts of the Caribbean, and I have a scarf consortium in the basement of Harrods. I'm just here to tell you all about this wonderful, relatively new podcast from the After Movie Diner. There's movie discussion, interviews with independent film directors, music, and abject silliness. First thing, every Monday, just in time for your sweaty and stressful commute... 
or like me, maybe you're sprawled seductively on a chaise long waiting for a really good breakfast. Go to amdpodcast.blogspot.com or search for After Movie Diner on iTunes, TalkShoe, Podbean, or Facebook and get that dose of goodness that you've been looking for. For all your sleepless nights, long commutes, lonely weekends, maybe spent dressed in a tutu playing checkers with a machine eating Nutella straight from the jar. It's the After Movie Diner podcast filled with all the B-movie vitamins your body deserves. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at TwilightZone85.com. Dreams for Sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. Duemila anni fa, leoni e leopardi correvano liberi nella foresta. Gli dei vivevano liberi nei cieli e nei mari. 500 anni fa vennero i bianchi e con le armi da fuoco massacrarono leoni e leopardi e con le armi da fuoco incendiarono il cielo e la terra degli dei. I bianchi portarono i nostri re e il nostro popolo a lavorare come schiavi le nuove terre d'America. I nostri dei partirono con i re e con il popolo. Nelle nuove terre d'America gli dei assistettero alle sofferenze dei nostri re e del nostro popolo. Gli schiavi neri lavorarono duro per arricchire i padroni bianchi e il sudore era sangue. Il sangue che ha fatto fruttare le piantagioni di tabacco, cotone, canna da zucchero e tutte le altre enormi ricchezze d'America. Ma un giorno i nostri dei si sono ribellati e il popolo ha preso le armi per riconquistare la sua libertà. Il nostro popolo e i nostri dei lottano da oltre 300 anni contro i bianchi che si accaniscono a decimarli con barbara determinazione. Ma i bianchi non riusciranno a uccidere me, zumbi, che reincarno i capi assassinati. Questa lancia spaccherà la terra in due. Da una parte staranno i carnifici, contro di essi tutta l'Africa. Libera. Qui e in ogni altro luogo, ogni nero porterà in sé un poco d'acqua, ma noi ora non affronteremo più le loro armi con le lance e la magia. Contro l'odio, l'odio. Contro il fuoco, il fuoco. That's right, we are wrapping up Cinema Novo next week with a look at Glauber Roche's The Lion Has Seven Heads. Until then, I want to thank this week's guests, Chris and David. So, David, what's been keeping you busy lately? Oh, so much. Uh, I'm still working on my documentary, uh, and I've talked about this before. It's on Exorcist to the Heretic, and we're going to complete it next year, and it's going fantastic. And I'm also uh, the host of a new podcast, which happened out of kind of nowhere, which was wonderful. It's called The Outcast, presented by Outfest. And basically, it's me sitting down with LGBT content creators and performers and their allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. And season one has had an amazing number of people. I've talked to John Cameron Mitchell, Christine Bechon, Laverne Cox, Jonathan Groff, the queens from We're Here, which are Shangela, Eureka, and Bob the Drag Queen. I've talked to Miss Coco Peru. I've talked to documentary filmmakers Rachel Mason and Jeffrey Schwartz. It's just been amazing. And it starts very soon. And uh, I am just so happy to be part of it. And Chris, for folks who may not have listened to our last few episodes, which uh, they definitely should, what's been happening in your world? Oh, just talking Steven Seagal movies because I hate myself over at the Culture Cast. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, um, Steven Seagal movies. That's a thing. If you want to listen to us talk about them, Mike, you're going to be on an episode here pretty quick about uh, Fire Down Below. So there's that. Uh, you know, just keep him busy with that and the other podcasts. You want to find me, casualty underscore Chris on Twitter, culturecast.com, scary stories we tell.com. That's where you can find me if you're looking for me. And if not, I guess you're not looking for me. What a double feature of Mako Naima and Fire Down Below. Can you imagine the fun I had doing that? Boy, I can imagine country western singers shooting at Steven Seagal and fountains that turn black people white. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. No fundo do mato virgem nasceu Macunaíma. 
Era preto retinto E filho do medo da noite No fundo do mato virgem Nasceu Macunaima Era preto retinto E filho do medo da noite
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.